HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say. It's called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkellen. On today's episode, for nearly a century in the basement of H. Rue de Cherchmidi in the Saint-Germain-du-Pré district of the 6th arrondissement, the surname Poilan has been synonymous with bread and Parisian life since 1932. Pierre Poilan began making his family's signature five-pound stone-ground wheat miche in a wood-fire oven, and since then his son Lionel, then now daughter of Lionel Apollonia, have kept that flame alight. After decades of service and guarded secrets, they finally share their recipes with the world in their eponymously named cookbook, Poilan. Welcome, Apollonia. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for your warm welcome. Absolutely. You know, I had such a warm welcome to your family's bakery uh, 15 years ago, maybe even a little bit longer, when I was doing a piece for a magazine, and some cousin of yours uh, accepted that editor's request for me to go and photograph downstairs. And I remember standing down there, unable to photograph because of the relative humidity in that room. Um, and I also was uh, young, didn't know anything at all about photography and that kind of travel journalism. But I was so fascinated by bread at that point that it was just a pleasure to be in that room. Uh, can we just paint a picture of what the basement of that address looks like? Because now we see it in pictures in this book, but... You've lived your whole life descending those stairs. 
I have. I have. I learned how to bake there. Um, I learned how to um, shape little um, figurines out of bread dough, cut out biscuits. When you go on Huit Rue du Cherche Midi, it is a small early 20th century facade, brick clad. It's a small store where on the left you have the bread and on the right you have the biscuits and you have the cashier in front of you. Now, if you follow the way down to the back, there will be a series of stairs down, going down to the bakehouse. And there you're in the basement of a former 17th century convent. The whole neighborhood were convents and monasteries. And you have in the far back this wood-fired oven that's warmth and that's beauty and imposing size, just like commend respect. And you have the baker's table, the bread's being produced at that moment um, to on either side. You'll have pastries fresh out of the oven that is stacked up on what we call échelle, so effectively a ladder um, of our production, waiting to be brought up to the store. And that place is special because my grandfather started to bake there in 1932. My father and I apprenticed there, and it's really my home. It, it, it's, it's wild because it feels like walking into a living diorama. It, it looks like the canon of what all Parisian bread bakeries should be. Can you talk to me, aside from your own familiar bakery, what bakeries and bread really mean to Parisian life? Yeah, so, <clears throat> and also that blends into the Poulain story because my grandfather started in 1932 on a street where there was, you know, within the block, six bakeries. And the way he distinguished himself from his um, um, his neighbors, um, competitors to some extent, but um, the French word would be confrères, so people with whom you share bread to some extent, um, um, and his fellow um, bakers, the way he set himself apart was making this big, large sourdough wheat loaf. And that was special because at the time, a bakery, um, a typical bakery in Paris, would produce baguettes. Baguettes were a white piece of bread, which was so exciting to people because they could afford not to have the whole wheat flour. And it's a smaller bread, which means that you need to eat it fast because it won't keep long. And that talks as to exactly what you were saying. A bakery is something that's very much of a neighborhood um, point of it's, it really is the crossroads um, and the main focus of a neighborhood. Um, people choose um, their bakeries and will walk far away to go to a bakery they like better um, in their neighborhoods. Um, but mainly, a bakery happens at every street corner, and it's a place you go to, on average, five times a week. I, you must have seen customers growing up your whole life, you know, daily. Uh, stories about customers that have generations as, as much as your family has you know, uh, owned and operated Poilin. But there's something to be said about tourists as well. And I, I myself, and you know, an American, a foreigner coming to Paris, how, how do you interact with and service the idea of being a neighborhood place, but now also being this mecca of, you know, this five-pound niche? So... So Poilin is in an area that's a very touristy area um, now, or has been, has become more touristy because it is the home of all the intellectuals of the Rive Gauche. 
Um, and at the bakery, we first and foremost serve our neighborhood clients, but we also serve people who are walking through the bakery um, because they've read about it, working or, or walking around um, the neighborhood. And those are some of the specifics about about our, our neighborhood bakery on Rue du Cherche-Midi. In our store in the 15th, we have a little more local, uh, more local crowd. In the 3rd, we, we have more tourists because visitors love the upper side of the Marais. And in my fourth store in the 19th, we have even yet a different population where we're in an area that's really up and coming and really literally like on the street from one side to the next you're like yeah, there's like completely different buildings and architectures young couples um and old families that have been around for decades um and and so it is a testament as to how linked it is to the to the neighborhood um but i take a lot of pride in serving each and every person regardless of their background and i think what's beautiful is that they all come to the same place your, your grandfather, Pierre, was he an overt person? Was he somebody that came to the front of the store, greeted people as they came in? Or, or did that start with your dad, who, in reading this book, is, is such a character in, in it of itself? Oh, my God, yes. My father was a character. But my grandfather, he did follow my grandfather's uh, footsteps. My grandfather was very much a figure of the neighborhood. In fact, if you go to the little bistro that's around the corner, you will see at the far end of the Sauvignon some envelopes with sketches of my grandfather and Emilie's grandfather, because she now runs the family operation. Um, and both of our grandfathers are holding glasses of red wine and enjoying their times. But it is my father that really structured the business and took it from a neighborhood bakery to a structured business that could serve a larger community. Do you can can you repeat the quote that Salvador Dali said about your father? Well, I probably can't, but he did say something to the effect that my father was his favorite living Frenchman, which is um, it's very humbling. Um, but I think the backstory is even better. So we're in the late sixties. Um, Saint Germain des Prés was up and coming. It's an area that historically um, had in the early 20th century, a lot of artisans and craftsmen, artists as well. And my grandfather started bartering bread for art. And we started putting that art on the walls of the back room of the bakery. My father carried on that tradition, met the Spanish artist. And they started with some small ideas and products that they wanted to do together until the day where Salvador Dali asked to make a whole bedroom made out of bread. And, you know, this is a famous example, but we've been working before and ever since with various artists at doing different um, projects, ranging from, I mean, like the first one that comes to mind is the time we, we baked jeans filled with dough. <laughs> and literally, like, you can, like, and it's funny because in, in French, the word miche can also refer to your ass as it's kind of a derogatory words. <laughs> so it was kind of we were like we're baking miches, but in a different way yes, I in will this now pair never of jeans. Miche the same, or maybe <laughs> even in a, a better light. Um, first of all, it should be called a bread room, you know, to, to the pun of the bed bread room. But 
this idea of collaboration, your mother, you know, was was a wonderful designer and started collaborating with people from, uh, you know, Carl Lagerfeld and, and others of that ilk. Um, what was it about Poilan being such a crossroad of culture? Yeah. Well, you pointed out earlier that bread and bakeries are, in France, a very specific breed of stores. It's a place where we meet, where we discuss, where people talk about their joys and their sorrows. And my mother, um, as a trained architect and as a designer when she came to France from the U.S., uh, really um, worked with my father and um, brought her experience um, into the bakery. And she designed uh, several seasons of jewelry for the haute couture for uh, for Karl Lagerfeld and and Chanel. Um, and it, you know, she really. Both of my parents really brought um, their their understanding that bread brings people together. The bring there's the links between bread and just really all domains of knowledge are huge, and at least because bread has fed us for so long throughout generations of humans. I mean, we ate bread as our main source of food, and so the links are so intrinsically, you know there. It's just, it's not all that hard to reconnect them. But it wasn't so much just about sustenance, because what I love about Poilon and its product is its imperfection, that as a business, you've grown so much over the years, and uh, I don't know how many loaves you make a day, uh, thousands we, upon thousands. We bake around three to 5,000 loaves a day, but the beauty and the intelligence of the way my parents grew the business um, and it's that's a choice. There's no there's no right or wrong. But their choice was they did not want to compromise on a production that, from start to finish, is done by one baker. Um, and so they ha- we have four stores in Paris, three of which have a b- bakehouse in the in the basement. The fourth has a mill. And outside of Paris, my mom, as an architect, and my father, as a baker, created some 35 years ago uh, our manufacture. And they chose the word to really reflect the fact that it was 24 ovens, one next to the other, that would allow for um, however many breads needed um, and without compromising on quality. So it's not, it's not a chain, uh, it's not a chain work. It really is like 24 bakeries, neighborhood bakeries, one next to the other, but on a ground level with daylight, with a garden. And um, in one bakehouse, there's actually two... Uh, working stations, so bakers have the proximity of of their colleagues, but they're not. Um, they are still working on their own, so they're responsible for their production from start to finish. But I, I love that there isn't an identical product. That there are all these different hands. I know they go through a rigorous nine month, uh, you know, training period, as as you did yourself. Um, it, I actually have a question about that too. Uh, is there a point? Uh, during that process or after, you feel like certain bakers don't have the poil on hand. Is, is there yeah. a latitude um, that you give a baker to express their own self in your bread? So when we bake, so we have breads of wheat, breads of rye, uh, and we also have a bread of corn flour. And all of these products are handmade. So yes, they fit within a range of what is the product, but they all have their own personality. When our bakers sign the pea as it goes into the oven, you can really tell the writing of the different bakers. And we have clients that want 
bread that's really um, well cooked and others who want it a little less cooked. And so as a result, we also have that diversity. But um, we foster that tradition for nine months where we try and tune our baker's five senses to what it is that makes for that quality bread. And usually along the process, if the baker or I feel that, or Polan feels that we're not, there isn't that connection, there isn't that symbiosis, usually things fall apart on their own. You mentioned those five senses, touch, smell, sight, sound, taste. And they're so important because people keep on looking at this craft from a very scientific point of view um, when baking at home. But I think what's more important when you're going to bake at home, you want to be feeling the bread. You want to be owning how to adjust your ingredients um, that will react to your environment that day. Um, whether it's a hot and warm day or a dry and cool day, the bread dough will not react the same way. And if you were to do it in the exact same way, it would just be senseless. Well, you've been doing it the Poilon way since 1932. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk more with Apollonia Poilon on the food scene. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Apollonia Poilan of the famed Poilan Bakery in Paris. And we were just talking about the manufacturing, uh, this space that has 2,400-ton ovens, uh, making thousands of loaves a day. Um, if, if you've never been to a Poilan, I urge you to go. Uh, if, if you can't make it... Look for a sign that says Easy Pan Poilan, where a lot of resellers actually have to have that insignia to sell your bread. Um, 
or now you can maybe bake your own loaf by uh, reading through this wonderful cookbook you have. But I, I, I want to talk about me for a second. Uh, aside from going into your bakery, uh, you know, like 15 or so years ago, um, I also knew that you were at Harvard because I was at school in Boston at the same time and I was baking bread around town and people were, were humming with the fact that there was this woman uh, of, of legacy um, on campus uh, getting bread shipped to her once a week and bringing it to the dining hall. Um, I didn't think anything of it then because I didn't know enough about bread at the time. Uh, a year or so later, I went to Paris and experienced Pralon first time. Um, you were running Pralon Bakery out of your dorm room. Mm-hmm. This is because of a very tragic moment in your life, your parents passing unexpectedly. But there must have been something, well, there, there must have been your whole life preparing you for this. But what made you at that point, aside from really being the only person of the next generation, you and your sister, to take over, what made you want to do that more than ever? I think just simply the obviousness that that was my place. I took over the family business in November 2002 after my parents passed away in an accident. I was taking a year off before going to college and I knew that I was going to take over the family business at some point, but the plan was to go to college and then slowly start taking over the family business um, following my father's footsteps. I have been clearly groomed since a very young age to take over the family business just by the mere exposure to it. Um, I learned how to count, giving back the change to the bakery. Um, I learned how the feel and touch uh, and the environment of the bakehouse, spending Wednesday afternoons in the pastry lab or in the bakehouse. Um, I learned also about all the other aspects of a bakery operation and a family business, all the accounting, all the back, um, all the administrative work. And I used to earn um, my um, my pocket money by filing all the invoices at the end of the month and helping out the teams. And when my parents um, had their accident, it was very clear to me that that was my place. There was a sense of obviousness, obviousness that I was going to take over the family business. There is the simple allegory to La Mer, the mother doe that, that could certainly you know be brought up right now. But there's something about, you know, Poilon Bakery, about the life of, you know, that that bread and that dough that it just couldn't have existed without you. Um, I mean, you, you could have not done it then and decided, well, this is the end of Poilon. But what is it that lives in that bread um, that, that you breathe, that your, your sister and now there's a new generation ready yes. and rife uh, <laughs> to take it over? What does it mean to you as a person to don the name Poilon? <laughs> um, well, love and passion would be a, a quick answer to that. Um, when I when my parents passed away, I, you know, like there was a sense of obviousness, but there was also the sense that I had an understanding that was quite unique, and it would take me so much time to share with um, someone that I would hire as a CEO that I should take over the job working with my father's team. Um, 17 years later, um, we've carried on developing the family business. Um, some of the teams have changed, you know, I mean, 17 years down the road, some people 
retired, um, and and we and my sister um, had a child um, a little under a year ago. So there is that sense of continuity. But and it's if you look at the words that are related to motherhood and the words that are related to bread, um, they are very similar. And I think it it shows that, that the parallels between both the craft and the cycle of life. You know, I just realized, not to date us, uh, half of your life. You've been running Poilan now. Half of your life. I have. Um, in 2020, Poilan will be 88 years old, and it I will have been in charge for 18 years. Now, let me dwell on that for just a second. Number eight is the place we're at, Vitre du Cherche Midi. Um, and eight, if you put it sideways, it represents infinity. And I think it's such a beautiful number for that. And I remember that was something that was really important to me when I was 18 years old and the invitation to my birthday party. Um, so when 2020 and the 18 years um, of being in charge of the family business and having that half of my life um, been spent at the bakery um, crept on me, I thought, we need to be celebrating this because... Eight represents infinity. It represents the wealth of know-how we have, but also also the wealth of opportunities there is ahead. Um, it is an auspicious number in Asian cultures, which I think is reinforces even more um, this celebration that we're about to um, enter in. Uh, I will be expecting an invite. I will there. I will be there to celebrate. Well, looking forward to. I will, I will celebrate you no matter uh, when I'm in Paris. Every time uh, it is one of my first destinations. If only for the punitions, the, the, <laughs> the punishments. And um, l- let's explain what these are. I think they were really my first taste of Poilan. And we've talked about this wonderful miche, which is really the lifeblood of your bakery. But these small little round butter sablés uh, are, are... They're dangerous. Yes, very much. So much Especially for your tongue. <laughs> yeah, they, I had one straight out of the oven one time, and it just seared my palate. But, but it's seared in my memory in that same way. Um, Tell me the story about what punitions are and what it meant to your family. So punitions are sablés. They are Normandy-style and textured um, biscuits, butter cookie, which my great-great-grandmother would call my grandfather, saying, come and get your little punishments, and opening her hand to the little punitions. And that tradition my father decided to put forward and we've been calling the punitions um, as such for many, many moons. And um, they are a punishment because it really, um, you have to wait until they cool down. That's to your uh, previous yeah, experience. I certainly didn't learn that. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the diversity of the tastes you can have, whether you want, you like them well cooked or on the lighter side. Um, and now that I have. Um, developed a whole collection of different grain biscuits to show people the different tastes of different grains. That's a whole new other dimension for the for the experience. I initially thought that was punishment not to include the base recipe in the book, but <laughs> this is what's so amazing about you as a person and what you've done. Uh, to be able to retain Poilan, uh, the, the name, the essence of that bakery, but realize we, we are you know, changing as a society. We understand so much more, not just the science of bread, but that uh, there are different wheats, different flavors, different things to experiment with. So as, as much as we want to stay in the past, how how do we 
Yeah. How do we nurture the future? Yes. And it's not like people like to think on, oh, this is tradition. Oh, this is the old fashioned way. But like it's senseless. Like, and, and we get that when we bake bread because, you know, every batch we have, we have guidelines, but every batch is a new batch. So there is no old fashioned or the old methods. It's like <clears throat> we're, we're doing it here and now, and this is contemporary bread. And Poilin's at the heart of Poilin's tradition, there is that conversation between past and present, taking the best of past techniques and the best of modern techniques, questioning what's fashionable, questioning the status quo, venturing out into an understanding of what are grains, what is fermentation, how do we bake contemporary bread, biscuits, and baker's pastries. Or how do you make the perfect piece of toast? I will forever be changed. <laughs> Talk to me about this methodology. I've never seen it before, and I'm going home to try it today. So it's extremely complicated. <laughs> um, um, tune up, stay, stay all ears here. Take two pieces of toast, put them together, and into one slot of the toaster. So they have to be thinly sliced. So they have to be thinly sliced. It all depends on your toaster, right? So the main thing is there is nothing worse than a piece of toast that once it's cooled down is dry and crunchy, unless you're trying to do something else with it. Um, the trick here to keep your toast, especially when you have several guests at home, um, and I love to greet uh, my friends at home, so I definitely make heavy use of this. If you're going to use the piece of toast just on the minute, like that's fine. But if you're going to do several pieces of toast, or if you want to just fill up your bread basket of bread, put two slices back to back into one slot, so only one slide side is toasted. And that will make for a piece of toast that once it's cooled down will still be nice and fun to crunch into. Um, my, um, my father used to recommend that and at home, if my slice of bread is a little too thick, I'll just put it on the top of the toaster and you know, that works too. It feels like a very Parisian thing. I, I have a friend that I first saw do that in that city and it, it, it's a distinctly different way to use a toaster, but it works nonetheless. It works nonetheless. <laughs> Let's talk about your dad's bread sandwich too. It feels very meta to, to have a bread sandwich. What exactly is that? So bread sandwich is... Two pieces of bread with a piece of bread inside. Um, it is, he said it very seriously, but also I'm sure with um, a huge big um, nod to just how um, important bread is in our societies, how much it's sustained generations, but also how it feeds you physically, because when it's consistent good bread, it will be sufficient. Um, and my experience in college was that mornings where I had my bread, I would stay, I would be fine until lunchtime. And mornings when I ran out of bread, I was miserable because by 10, 30, 11 AM, I was like starving. But beyond that, it is food for thought as well, because it questions what kind and what quality breads do you eat? Um, and in my book, um, drawing on that nod that my father did, I wanted to encourage my readers to venture out and use different types of bread since nowadays people um, get, I've never seen such a wealth of um, bread's inclusions. Um, and I think that because they're like almost a meal in and of themselves, why not slice a beautiful slice of them and put them into two thin slices of a wheat or rye or corn sourdough bread and eat that as a sandwich 
slathered with a condiment, some butter, a little bit of oil, some garlic. I don't know. What not? That just sounds like a tartine stack. And it, you have references or recipes for fresh goat cheese and salmon roe tartines, apple compte and caramel, which I it sounds evil. so perfect for the fall right now. Oh, it's so perfect. Yeah. Did it's you call so it perfect. evil? It's totally evil because it's kind of like, there's a, so there's this French saying, it's like, do you want cheese or dessert? Um, and this one is the answer. I'll have both. <laughs> That's why it's evil. Um, and so it's, it's a tartine, an open face sandwich where you um, layer apple and add some um, caramel. That sounds lovely. You know, and bread doesn't always have to just be a vehicle, like you're referencing in this sandwich, uh, like the baked camembert casse croute, that it can be... uh, A vessel. Yes. Or an ingredient. And that's one of the other messages that I really want to come across in this book is don't look at bread as just a food. Consider it as an ingredient. Because our genera- the generations before us didn't have that choice. Uh, when they made pain perdu, croutons, uh, when they replaced parmesan by breadcrumbs, they did it out of necessity. And now we can do it and bring it to another level because we can afford to have bread at the table for the most part. Um, and when you know just how much work has gone from grain to bread to table, why would you want to? waste the bread, especially if it's quality bread. I mean, there's a bread granola recipe. There's a bread creme tabbouleh, which I love. And you're not sticking specifically to Parisian or French recipes at that either. Bread is, uh, you know, a global phenomenon. Yeah. And and, and so the, the great thing about my craft is that whenever I say that I'm a baker, it usually opens up a door of memories, of sharings that I, every time I've traveled, I've um, consigned the recipes, the traditions, to make them my own, or you know, or see how brought back to Paris. How could I adapt that recipe to make it with my ingredients? And and you know, that sort of international language of bread is real. It's something that really brings people together. Confrère. Confrère. Copain. The person with whom you literally share bread with. Well, I hope to share bread with you, Apollonia, uh, as often as possible here at Poilon around the world. Thank you so much for being on the food scene. Everyone, please go out, get this book, stop by the bakery, uh, say hello to Apollonia herself. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Hearst Ranch, Music by Cookies, and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Food Scene is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening.